Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night. 
I'm reading a book right now, and if its popularity on the Goodreads site is of any indication, you may have already read it. It's Eric Larson's The Devil in the White City. Now, just before the few of you that have not read the book pen this one under your list of horror books that Stephen Kilpatrick has recommended, I'll give you pause, and I'll tell you that I wouldn't slot it perfectly in the genre. It's a book that tells historical events in a more novel-like format. The reason I mention it here is the book is primarily about the construction of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, but about a third of the book is about Dr. H. H. Holmes, an early American serial killer. I feel like I may have mentioned him here years ago, but I couldn't find any record of it. The man built a shoddy hotel in the greater Chicago area a few blocks away from the site of the fair, in which the plan was to lure young women there and then murder them. I am right about the halfway point of the book, and I think that anyone who likes historic horror will find themselves comfortable reading this. It reminds me of so many horrific elements of this country's history, and I don't necessarily mean the overt systemic racism, for example, but the things that everyone seems to take for granted, like the Union Stockyards in Chicago, where you could watch the throats of swine being slit open right in front of you. In fact, the yards were a major tourist stop. The events in the book predate the founding of the Pure Food and Drug Act by a few years, so the people in that time could mail order any drug from anyone that they would want, including the Keeley Institute's miraculous gold cure for treatment of alcoholism. If there was ever a standardized recipe for that concoction, it was never found, but various attempts to test the contents returned various results. However, if you intended to treat your dear old mother for her drinking, with Kelly's, you'd be feeding her strychnine, apomorphine, ammonia, atropine, or, and maybe all of, well, more alcohol. And even though it was poison... Leslie Keeley, the founder of the Keeley Institute, passed one from this world, a rather rich man. Very early in the book, Larson talks about the tremendous daily number of Chicago citizens who are killed by stepping in front of carts or trains. I presume that this is before the standardization of traffic lights or the Federal Railroad Administration's policies on railway crossing signals. Oh, and the murders. The high number of murders, most of which wouldn't get any meaningful attention from law enforcement unless your next of kin had money. Otherwise, your corpse would be of little more inconvenience than the literal tons of horse manure produced by Chicago's main method of transportation. And speaking of corpses, the book does go into detail about how Dr. H. H. Holmes was one of the only serial killers that I'm aware of that made a profit from the very materials of his murders. Yes, he sold his murder victims' bodies. He would have the corpses stripped of flesh and the bones reassembled and then sold as a medical specimen. You know what? I'll tell you what. I'll read a brief passage from this book, and then we'll move on to hear our stories for the night. It was obvious to Holmes that even now, in the 1890s, demand remained high. Chicago's newspapers reported ghoulish tales of doctors raiding graveyards. After a foiled raid on a graveyard in New Albany, Indiana, on February 24, 1890, 
Dr. W. H. Wathen, head of the Kentucky Medical College, told a Tribune reporter, The gentlemen were acting not for the Kentucky School of Medicine nor for themselves individually, but for the medical schools of Louisville, in which the human subject is necessary as breath to life. Just three weeks later, the physicians of Louisville were at it again. They attempted to rob a grave at the State Asylum for the Insane in Anchorage, Kentucky, this time on behalf of the University of Louisville. Yes, the party was sent out by us, a senior school official said. We must have bodies, and if the state won't give them to us, we must steal them. The winter classes were large and used up so many subjects that there are none for the spring classes. He saw no need to apologize. The asylum cemetery has been robbed for years, he said, and I doubt if there is a single corpse in it. I tell you, we must have bodies. You cannot make doctors without them, and the public must understand it. If we can't get them any other way, we will arm the students with Winchester rifles and send them to protect the body snatchers on their raids. Children of the Night, if you like American history sprinkled with some of the more morbid details of our collective social history, take a look at Larson's The Devil in the White City. Let's hear some stories. Sean Mulroy lives in Newcastle, Australia. His fiction has previously appeared in Everyday Fiction, Perihelion Science Fiction, and Andromeda Spaceways Magazine. Listen with me to Sean Mulroy's One More Arabian Night, a Tales to Terrify original. The desert encroaches, woe to him in whom deserts hide. Friedrich Nietzsche Not long after our black tents were pitched and a golden fire kindled, he came, draped in thick, ragged robes, astride a skinny camel. The famished beast plodded drearily over sunburned crests of high dunes with that relentless red evening orb, a fiery furnace going down behind. Our caravan of nomads stood and watched in awe as the lone rider shifted from a dark silhouette to something of substance, till descending the last dune to enter our campfire's glow and dismount. He wore a kefia headdress, which hid much of his face, was shoulder-width and worse than threadbare. His dark flowing thob, ankle-length and made of sheep wool, although once of a fine make, looked like an ancient garment pulled from a long-dead noble's tomb and was little better than shredded rags. What lay hidden underneath those tatters must have been an emaciated carcass because his face resembled a skull, save for a long beard, which was as grey as ash, and yet, stuck deep inside sunken eye sockets were two emerald embers burning brighter than our fire. Who are you? It was Dawood who asked the inevitable question. Water, beseeched the man. And that word from his mouth sounded as dry as desert sand. 
I handed him a leather flagon. He took it hungrily and swallowed as much as his wasted body allowed. Allah be praised. He passed it back, refusing any more and appeared so weak as if he would tumble over at my feet to meet his maker. My brother, Badr al-Din, offered the stranger a palm of dates and a fist of dried goat flesh. To both, the man shook his head, then gazed longingly off into the distance at sandy, infinite wastes, in the pointless direction he had been heading. What are you staring at? I asked. He had a glint in those eyes that was eerie and unnerving, with a strange intensity about it, as if they could see beyond the far-flung horizon and each endless dune to some fertile valley. Can't you hear? He cupped a hand to one ear and closed both eyes as if listening to some sad lay singing of home and the end of suffering. I'm, I'm close, he said. Not much further now. Thinking he may be suffering from the ravages of some prior head injury or at the minimum heat stroke, we dismissed his words and relaxed, for it had become apparent that the man was unarmed and therefore posed no danger. We casually sat in a circle about the fire and motioned for him to join us. I patted at an empty space beside me. Sit down, friend, you have no need to continue your journey through the night. Dawood then said, Besides, you are heading the wrong way. He pointed where the stranger's gaze led. Out there is the heart of the desert. Only jackals, vultures, gear eagles, shape-shifting ghouls, all the dark things of this earth will greet you. Death awaits all who venture. The man shook his head with such disinterest that Dawood stopped mid-sentence. He then leaned against his dromedary for support. A mangy, atrophied beast with blinking, blary eyes and continued to glare at the darkening horizon where a few twinkling stars were starting to wink. <laughs> Not for me, he scoffed bitterly. I've beaten death before. I fear nothing in this world, neither Ifrits nor Azrael, and I am finished with men in their wars now. They cannot harm me. You were a soldier in your youth. The man looked surprised like the question was not asked of him, even so he nodded. I was and rode gallantly on a black Arabian charger, fronting many vanguards for the sultanate. With an excruciating gesture, he stood up straight, even though it caused him much pain to do so, putting shoulders back, presenting to us what must have been an impressive figure once. I led the siege of Yazwan. I have known glory, been dressed in tunics of blue silk and attired in cloaks of cotton cloth and turbans of prized fabric from China. Honored by ashrafs and sahibs, offered vast tracts of land and many wives. My exploits were once toasted by powerful merchants in the richest bazaars. Slaves carried me on podiums of peril and topaz to be worshipped by courtesans in the finest harems, as if I were the sultan himself. But the stranger then hunched over once more, rested against his camel, and for the first time since he'd approached, lost some of that intensity in his eyes. Alas, my mujahideen were overwhelmed by crusaders at Dezil and retreated into the desert. We were flanked and chased and made our last stand somewhere around there. We all looked up at that moment and for the first time in a while heard the wind howl and saw specks of sand riding it, tinted yellow by fading light, 
dancing randomly over each and every tune. My company was destroyed and alone I fled into those barren wastes. For many days I wandered, throwing off my armor, my scimitar and jewel-encrusted sheath I cast aside. I walked till almost naked and feet burned raw. But then I heard it. A voice sung a song which was bitter and sweet. The words and stilted rhythm conjured visions of perpetual and numberless waterfalls crashing into the great oceans of sea-churned bliss. The voice begged to be followed and pulled me ever forward to its destiny like a hawk. From out of nowhere in the distance, an oasis emerged and I crawled in, my death throes to enter. It was a small patch of verdant green stuck between knolls of fluctuating sand. On the edge of that field bubbled an overflowing well containing the clearest and freshest water imaginable. He ravenously and macabrely licked parched lips together with a haunted yearning. A small adobe hut is there also, finely made with seamless mud bricks, surrounded by palm trees which bend inwards to give shade. Out there, he pointed with one skeletal arm, exists that tropical garden out there. He repeated, again as if trying to convince himself, in the middle of the desert. From the hut stepped a woman, her loose gown and skin so fair it was impossible to tell the difference. Her hair darker than a raven, her eyes continually blushed peace and promised oblivion. She stepped back indoors and motioned for me to follow. Inside smelled of myrrh and cassia. A high dome roof caught and circulated only the coolest desert winds. Thick mud-brick walls trapped a perfect temperature so that pleasure within was almost unbearable. She continued to sing and beg me rest and remain in her arms forever. The man suddenly leered up at us bizarrely, as if expecting an ambush from Christians, and once more his eyes were lit with a frightening intensity. A wide-eyed stare I'd seen once or twice before from veterans of the holy wars who returned home different from when they had left. I told her I would, that I wanted to stay more than anything, but something went wrong. Perhaps I fainted or was taken by fever, by the heat, I know not. But I slept against her bosom and a great darkness swallowed me. I fell into it and just floated through empty space. When about to pass through the darkness to be released, to reach the other side, I was pulled out against my will, for I wanted to stay there and sleep for all time. Yet upon waking, I was being carried on the back of a mule amid a tribe of Bedouins. Ways off in the distance were shining minarets and gleaming mosques and other such things suggesting civilization. Being too ill to resist, I led the tribesmen, who had obviously kidnapped me from the secret garden in my moment of weakness. Take me into the city, and there I stayed until well enough to return and search for the woman. Since then I have done so, and now he looked off once more into the limitless hillocks of arid nothingness. Now I can, for she's near. <coughs> he coughed grotesquely, like a dying man, very close, so I, so close I can hear her. I peered at my companions when his tale was finished, and their faces appeared to reflect how I felt. My friend, I asked, how long ago was this? Oh, his eyes glanced up at a dark sky, 
and although many stars were now in it their light was pale compared to the madness in his eyes not not that long ago perhaps a year or two when jerusalem fell there was a hush of indrawn air the man's last three words infidels have held jerusalem these past 20 years explained badr aldin the stranger flinched like he'd been stabbed in the belly for the last time his eyes seemed to lose their unearthly stare and appeared lost frightened and hurt unfathomably wounded with one withered hand he took hold of the stirrup and using what must have been his last ounce of energy flung himself upon the camel no that's not true he shook his head perhaps doing so cast some spell over him for once more his eyes were bedeviled like hot sand had been thrown in them and his physique went rigid with its hell-bent purpose soon i'll be beside her he said almost threatened then with the weakest strap ever a man made he struck the camel slowly it began to move forward i stood up what you speak of sounds like nothing more than a mirage an illusion these things are created by malevolent jinn and genie to torment desperate men's minds if not them the woman herself was no doubt a demon no he said with such finality and conviction that i dared not contradict no demon could promise an end of sorrow nor show complete mercy and give it nothing so fair could be evil wait yelled daud what you speak of is insanity the things men see in frenzied dreams of delirium there is no fabled oasis out there only death but i can hear her rasped the man and stared out at nothing but with an expectant glare that any moment he might find something she is close yes the hut is just beyond the next dune don't you understand i've searched for so long and now finally i'll be able to rest he rode into the desolation the fire's glow released him leaving the man to wander between dark shadows which were always on the move once more he became something insubstantial merely a ghostly phantom far off in the distance as he summited the crest of the furthest dune in eyesight he suddenly slumped over the neck of his camel even the beast appeared to lose its footing and fall but we couldn't tell for sure because at that moment a swirl of shifting sand took him and amid the debris he vanished was Sean Mulroy's One More Arabian Night, a Tales to Terrify original as read by Kashik Narasiman. Kashik is a management consultant by day and a writer by night with a keen interest in psychedelics and role-playing video games. Sounds like my kind of guy. Thank you, Kashik. Our second story comes to us from Chris Barnum. Chris Barnum lives in London and can't make up his mind whether he prefers writing horror or science fiction. If you want to read more from him, his horror novel Among the Living is on Amazon, and a new science fiction novel, 51, is out from Phyllis Vertz Publishing. 
Children of the Night, lend me your ears for Chris Barnum's Looking After Sean, originally appearing in Devolution Z, February 2016. The doorbell rings. Hello? Anybody home? A woman's voice. Well spoken, which worries me. In this area, anyone with an education is some kind of official. I'm lying on the sofa, my mind's fluttering back and forth, settling on memories from before Sean got ill. Some of those memories aren't really so old. Maybe two years ago. But there's a glossy blurred feel to them, as if they come from a movie, not real life. Hello? A clattering noise as she opens the letterbox to call through it. Mr Danziger, is he home? I stare at a dark patch on the ceiling. Sean's room is above this one. There isn't some kind of leak, is there? Miss Shapiro, could I speak to Geraldine Shapiro? Maybe I would have opened the door anyway. I can't let her stand on the doorstep yelling out everyone's name. But my mind's made up by the noise that follows Jerry's name. A thump on the ceiling directly above me, followed by a faint scraping, like a heavy piece of furniture being moved across the floor. Oh, somebody home, that's good. The woman on the doorstep takes a step back when I pull the door open and stand with my body blocking the small gap. It's bright outside making me blink. I'm from the council. I'm sorry to bother you, Mr... I don't say anything. My name's Sally Siviter, Finance Department. We do routine checks on houses where there are several individual claims, a housing benefit, things like that. She is about 30, with dark brown hair cut in a tight bob, wearing a white blouse and a narrow grey skirt. Reminds me how Shirley used to dress when she went out to work. I don't think about Shirley anymore. I've got six people listed, Sally's ever to tap the clipboard. You must be either Anthony Danziger, Thomas Robinson, or Sean... Tom, that's me. Ah, good, Mr Robinson. She makes a mark on her paper with a ballpoint pen. There is something innocent about her smile. It comes from a world I had forgotten. I want to run out into the street, slam the door behind me, and never go back. Look, could I come in for a minute to talk? There's a sound from deep in the house behind me, like a thick carpet sliding along a bare floor. I edge the door closed a few inches. Not a good time, not very well. I'm sorry to hear that. Is there someone else I can talk to? No one in. Sally Sivita's smile has faded. Neither of us speaks as she writes something. When would be a good time for me to come back? I do have to make these checks, you know. Tomorrow? Yes. I can't think of any other answer. Fine. Tomorrow. The woman left and I shut the door. I stood for a long time, leaning my head against the cool paint on the wooden frame. She would come back tomorrow. Next time she would not be so easily put off. Maybe she would not be alone. I should have planned for this. It could only go so long before the official world noticed something. 
The last year it's just one thing after another. The incident with Geraldine took it out of me. It's tiring and stressful when things end like that. I needed a break from the pressure from any new disturbance. Sean doesn't care though. It seems like the gaps are getting shorter. He doesn't rest. It took me a few days to settle things down after Jerry. Sean was agitated for the whole of the first night and into the next day. I stayed downstairs. I don't go upstairs if I can avoid it. When Sean's in that mood, you just keep quiet and stay away. I sorted out Jerry's room, made sure everything was in order. Now this councilwoman. I pushed myself away from the door and looked around, as if seeing the house for the first time, seeing it as a stranger would. Not good. Heaps of newspaper and unopened mail against the wall, film of dust and grease on the hall table, stains on the patterned carpet. I could picture the other rooms, mould-encrusted plates piled in the kitchen sink, strafed by fat flies, the leaking pipe beneath the sink, with its dark bloom of fungus. I didn't even want to think about upstairs. I shouldn't let her up there. Maybe it would be alright if I kept her to a couple of rooms down here. Clean up before tomorrow, put on a bit of a show so she would go away and leave us alone a bit longer. That was what I should do. A familiar, feathery touch in my head made me squeeze my eyes shut and clamp both hands to my temples. Not now, I shouted, my voice echoing up the stairs. For God's sakes, Jerry was only a few days ago. Let her in for a short time, then send her away. That was what I would do. I barely slept that night. Too much to do. I found cloths and soap and a couple of buckets under the stairs. I started in the lounge. It was close to the front door and I thought I could get the woman in there without her seeing the rest of the house. When there were more of us here, we mostly used the other downstairs room at the back of the house. We'd barely used this front room the last year and, although it was dirty and untidy, it wasn't as repellent as other parts of the house. After the lounge, I tackled the hall and then the kitchen. The kitchen was especially challenging. I tried to remember the last time anyone cooked in there. It might have been Shirley, so that was at least four months ago. There was a saucepan on the stove with nothing in it but a thick fur of greenish-white mould. I poked it with the fork and the mould cracked, giving up a soupy graveyard smell that crawled into my nose and throat. When the doorbell rings next day, I open the door to find Sally Siviter smiling on the doorstep again. She's dressed much the same, with a dark blue cardigan over her blouse, reflecting the cooler weather. I wonder how she dresses away from work, and what she likes to do in the evenings. It's like a thought beamed in from another world, from a life I used to live. Hello, Mr Robinson, isn't it? I can't prevent her looking around as I lead her into the lounge. Something goes stiff in her face, just for a second, as she looks up the staircase. I have a moment's panic as I follow her gaze, dreading what I might see on the stairs. But there's nothing. It's just that it's the one part of the house visible from the hall that I didn't clean. The torn carpet and stained wallpaper now contrast strongly with the newly buffed up downstairs. I usher her into the lounge. She hesitates for a moment when I gesture her towards a chair, giving it a suspicious look before sitting down with her clipboard on her knees. Now, she says, are any other residents here today? No. I really do need to talk to them, Mr. Rompson. I need to verify their circumstances. 
If I can't do that, we may need to stop their benefits. I'm nervous about noises. Before Sally Siviter arrived, I had put the radio on in the kitchen to mask any other sounds. Can you just confirm the occupants of the house? I'll go through my list, check it's up to date. She slides a finger down the sheet of paper on her clipboard. I've got an Anthony Danziger. He's not here. Obviously. But he still lives here? No. That's it. Tony uh, moved out. When was this? Maybe three months ago? The music from the kitchen is too quiet. Why didn't I turn it up louder? Although Sally Siviter's head is bowed over the clipboard, I can see the crease of a frown through her fringe. What about Geraldine Shapiro? Did she say that name louder? Or am I just over-anxious? I can't prevent a glance upwards. Is there a sound from upstairs? Is she in? No, she's gone. She's moved out as well? Just last week. I rubbed the back of my neck. Is it too warm in here? I'm fine, thanks. Where did she go? Miss Shapiro. Uh, She didn't leave an address. Mr. Romson, I have to tell you I have some concerns. She sits up straight in her seat. You say Mr. Danziger and Miss Shapiro have moved out, but neither of them has given us a new address. And Mr. Danziger has continued to receive payments of housing benefits at this address. I'm not sure about his unemployment pay. I'll have to check that. I think about the pile of unopened mail I shifted from the hall table the previous evening. It's in a box in the cellar. Obviously some of it is addressed to Tony. I never thought about doing anything with it. Now, what about the other residents? I've got a Shirley Wells and Elspeth Joseph. This isn't going the way I planned it. Did I think I could smile and offer her a cup of tea and she'd go away and not bother us for another six months? And then there's a Sean Watson. Sean's here. Why did I say that? I could punch myself in the mouth. There's a muffled thump from far back in the house. The woman's eyes flick briefly towards the ceiling and then return to me. He's here. Sean. He's just... He's been ill. I'm sorry to hear that. Could I talk to him? He's out at the moment. You said he'd been ill. What's wrong with him? I don't know the details. Picked up some bug abroad. Has he seen a doctor? Early on he did. From the clinic, you know, down the high street. And? And there was another time. Uh, He was bad in the night and we got the doctor out. Why can't I shut up? I can't even bear to think about that night, let alone tell this woman about it. The noise Sean made when the doctor went in his room. And then, even worse, the noise the doctor briefly made. Like a pig being strangled. It was a little man, the doctor. He wore a crumpled white shirt and he'd obviously had a long day by the time he reached us. He had a proper black leather bag, like in the movies. I'd always wondered what doctors had in those bags. Turns out it's pretty boring. Stethoscope and thermometer. A rubber pad to wrap around your arm for blood pressure. Papers for writing prescriptions. I dumped it all in the canal the next night. What doctor was that? I know them at that clinic. I don't remember his name. One of the doctors went missing a while ago. It was in the papers. It can't have been him then, can it? There is something deep in her eyes. I can't read it, but I don't think it's good. I made a mistake letting her in. I should never have answered the door. She just caught me at a weak moment after Jerry. Well, look, I stand up. 
I'm going to have to wrap things up. Got stuff I need to get on with. I'm afraid I haven't got all I need, Mr. Rompson. I've told you all I can. You'll have to talk to the others. When can I see them? Another day, or, I don't know, write to them? We've tried that. Who's upstairs? No one. Just me. But you're down here. You didn't make those sounds I heard. I think we've got mice. Big mice? A soft, scraping sound. Like a pile of old newspapers pulled across bare floorboards. For a moment I weaken. Maybe I should let her go upstairs. Christ, no. You have to go. Sorry. I shepherd her to the front door and get it open, standing aside to let her out. You can't hide as if someone's committing benefit fraud. Behind her, the afternoon is imminent with rain. If you don't talk to me, it may mean the police. Look, you seem a nice person. You should just leave us alone. Are you threatening me? I'm just doing my job. If people aren't living where they told us they were, we shouldn't pay them any money. That's fine. Stop their money then. Who's upstairs? I know there's someone. I rub my eyes heavily with both hands. First fat raindrops slap the path behind Sally. I don't know how long I can go on. Maybe it would be a relief to have other people involved. Take it out of my hands. It's Sean. I told you he's not well. He's been ill for a while. He had a trip to some godforsaken place in the Far East, Cambodia or somewhere. He came back with a fever. Can I see him? Maybe he should be in hospital. Again, just for an instant, the thought is tempting. Let us see him. Why not? No, just go. I push her by the shoulder and she stumbles a couple of steps into the rain. I slam the door shut behind her and lean against it with my eyes closed. Upstairs, Sean was thumping the floor. I wanted to cry. I thought about pulling the door open again and running after Sally Siviter. How good that would be, to run away and not come back. As soon as I had the thought, I felt again that feathery touch in my head, making me feel sick and pulling me a few steps away from the door, towards the stairs. Upstairs, the thumping grew louder. It's all right, I shouted up the stairs. Wondering if the civitor woman could hear me outside. I'm staying. Relax. With a whispering rush, the rain outside bloomed into a downpour, hammering the windows like an attack of fat moths. Early on, rain used to disturb Sean. He needed huge amounts of water, and the sound of rain seemed to frustrate him, provoking a lot of movement and those awful squealing sounds. We had to push buckets of water into his room to quieten things down. More recently, the sound of rain outside made him quieter, and I noticed that after significant rainfall, the buckets emptied more slowly than usual. Has he found a way to get water from the rain? It wasn't a pleasant thought, but I wasn't keen to get up a ladder outside and see what the roof looked like. I tried to drown the noise from Sean's room by putting the television on. There was no doubt about it, he was restless again. So soon after Jerry gaps were getting shorter. I thought was a lump of ice in my chest. It wasn't so bad in the early days. The infection Sean picked up in the east made him feverish and aggressive, followed by bouts of deep sleep. He drank inhuman amounts and he ate a lot, but in an odd way. Having been a vegetarian, Sean now craved meat. The rarer, the better. He wouldn't eat when anyone was there, so he left plates of chicken pieces or beef beside his bed. 
huge amounts. But however much we left, when you came back later, it was all gone. When raw meat began to disappear from the fridge, I took to living larger amounts in his room. By then I didn't like the idea of him coming downstairs, moving around the house in the night. Later still, the two cats from next door disappeared, and the neighbourhood emptied itself of the dogs you used to see hanging around. Sean grew bloated and pale from staying in the dark. He spent most of the time lying on the bed in the dark, making a strange, whining noise. After the doctor, whom we never spoke about, Shirley was the first. It happened really quickly. I passed the door of her room and saw her putting clothes in the suitcase. I asked her what she was doing, and she said she was leaving. It was weird. Once she said the words aloud, something shifted in the room, and for the first time I felt that soft, nauseating touch in my mind. I don't think you can. Shirley felt the touch too, and there was a moment's flare burst of fear on her face, which quickly subsided and sank deep in her eyes. It was replaced by a smooth blankness, as if she had put on a plastic Shirley mask. No, she said, and walked out of the room. She was still holding some knickers she had been about to put in the case. She looked like she had forgotten they were in her hand. She walked along the landing and opened the door to Sean's room. As she stepped inside, she turned back to look at me, and a little piece of Shirley remained in her eyes, begging me to stop her. I wanted to stop her. Really, I did. But if it hadn't been her, who would it have been? I watched from outside. Shirley lay down next to Sean on the bed. This was when there was still room for someone else, before Sean filled the bed and then most of the floor space around it. Shirley lay very still, and at first only Sean moved. In the dim light, I saw him put one arm around her, then another, and then, but this couldn't be true, another as he gathered her in. Shirley moved a little like a kitten struggling in the grip of a vet with a syringe. It was a wet, sucking sound and a succession of breathy gasps. I couldn't tell if Shirley or Sean made them. I watched for a long time. After an hour, it was just a bulky mound of flesh on the bed. You couldn't make out Shirley anymore, and Sean was different, bigger, puffed up and glistening with some kind of fluid. I shut the door and moved the chest of drawers across to block it. In the weeks after Shirley, the others went in there, one by one. I didn't watch again. In the end, after Jerry, there was just me. I think Sean always liked me best. But now, there was only me. It was obvious what would happen next. He didn't like me that much. When Sally Siverter comes back, she doesn't use the bell, just knocks softly at the door. I open it without checking who's outside. I know it will be her. What's wrong? Are you crying? I was cooking, I lie. Onions. I came back because you seem a decent guy and I want to help. I shouldn't be doing this, out of work time. You're too kind. I haven't filed my report yet, but I'll have to do it in the morning. Can I come in? No, run away. 
That's what I want to say. Honestly, I do. But there's a soft, twisting sensation in my head and no words come. I take a step back and she walks in. I want to see Sean Watson. Oh, you don't. You really don't. I can help, she says as she leads away upstairs. You just need to give me the facts and we'll see what we can sort out. People get into a mess sometimes, but it's okay to ask for help. That's what we're there for. That's why I took this job. Okay, I say. Let's see what Sean thinks. I show her to Sean's bedroom and open the door. I stand back and Sally steps forward to peer into the crowded darkness. She hesitates and looks back at me, some of her cheerfulness draining away. Is he here? I can't really see. She makes a face. What is that smell? Just go inside. My voice comes from far away. There was a flicker of doubt on her face, and I'm not sure if she will do it unaided. I don't think Sean has her measure yet, like he did with those of us who lived with him. I take her by surprise, stepping forward and pushing her roughly inside. She stumbles and trips over. She drops her briefcase just outside the door and falls onto her hands and knees inside. I slam the door behind her and block it. Of course I do. Do you think I want to watch that? But before the door closes, there's enough time to see the big, pale shape bloating out of the shadows. The extended limbs with the swollen claws, like something on a grossly overgrown mole. And the teeth, Jesus, the teeth! I haven't seen those before. A choking smell of decay hung in the landing after I shut the door. There was a lot of thumping and squealing from Sean's room. I went downstairs and put Sally Siverter's briefcase in the cellar, along with a pile of unopened mail from my former housemates. I found a bottle of whiskey down there, with a bit of pint still in it. I lay on the sofa and drank it all, straight from the bottle. When the house went quiet again, I lay for a long time listening to the renewed rain outside, until I dozed off. When I woke up the next morning, the empty whiskey bottle was on its side on the carpet, My head felt like there was a chunk of hot metal embedded behind my eyes. There was a soft scraping noise from upstairs and a feathery whisper in my head. For the first time, everything was clear in my head. I didn't have to be the last one, after all. Others would come after Sally Siviter, but it would be all right. I would look after Sean, and he would look after me. That was Chris Barnum's Looking After Sean, as read by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is very tall and very English and most likely is drinking a cup of tea right now. He's a scar on his arm that he can't remember getting, but a terrible darkness floods his mind when he considers it. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children, and despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. 
His surname rhymes with Dopey, but any other similarities to the dwarf are purely coincidental. He is the Golden Pen winner for Writers of the Future, Volume 32, and his fiction out and forthcoming all over the place. You can keep up with him at mattdovey.com or follow along on Facebook and Twitter, both as at mattdoveywriter. Links will be in the show notes. Thank you, Matt. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.